Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the best podcast in the world. We're talking about chapter 37. Poor Philip can't even meet a jolly girl with his club foot. Surely you can still dance with a club foot. And uh, how to spend Christmas alone. We should probably take note. <laughs> well, that's the kind of, as I read that back now, that's a bit of a downer. But also, you know, this Christmas will be an interesting one. Probably a lot of us will be spending it alone. That's uh, something to, I don't know, something to consider. Swim said the mum of fish, he said this, Oh boy, too bad for Mrs. Wilkinson. She can only write letters. Imagine if she could had the capability to text. Oh yeah, Phil's phone would be blowing up. Star 415 says, The club foot is back in the narrative whenever the author wants to stress his loneliness. The time in Germany, I totally forgot about. If he can play lawn tennis, he can dance. And Tripp said, I noticed that too. I felt it was conspicuously absent considering all the angst it caused him up until then. Yeah, how come he could just play tennis for a whole chapter of a book and then, you know, when it's convenient and he feels awkward about dancing or whatever it is or, you know, wants to feel sorry for himself, suddenly the club foot is the, the bane of his life. I Am Norwegian says, Philip has never felt so relatable. Moving to another city by yourself is always hard, but as an awkward introvert, it's worse, especially if the few acquaintances you have through your job, like Philip, are self-assured douchebags. <laughs> um, oh yeah, and I messed up the link in yesterday's episode. So uh, and I, I fixed it now, so if you want to go back and... Uh, you know, in case you weren't able to find yesterday's episode, you should be able to. I'll also post it in the comments of this discussion um, for those who, who need to go back. Because I did notice that it only had about uh, a third of the listens that uh, the episodes typically get. So I'm assuming that quite a few of you couldn't find your way there. So anyway, it is there. The link was just broken yesterday. Uh, anyway... That's the discussion. Let's read chapter 38. XXXVIII. At the end of the year, there was a great deal to do. Philip went to various places with a clerk named Thompson and spent the day monotonously calling out items of expenditure, which the other checked. And sometimes he was given long pages of figures to add up. He had never had a head for figures, and he could only do this slowly. Thompson grew irritated at his mistakes. His fellow clerk was a long, lean man of forty, sallow with black hair and a ragged moustache. He had hollow cheeks and deep lines on each side of his nose. He took a dislike to Philip because he was an articled clerk, because he could put down three hundred guineas and keep himself for five years. Philip had the chance of a career while he with his experience and ability, had no possibility of ever being made more than a clerk at 35 shillings a week. He was a cross-grained man, oppressed by a large family, and he resented the superciliousness which he fancied he saw in Philip. He sneered at Philip, because he was better educated than himself, and he mocked at Philip's pronunciation. He could not forgive him, because he spoke without a Cockney accent and when he talked to him sarcastically, exaggerated his 
H's. At first, his manner was merely gruff and repellent, but as he discovered that Philip had no gift for accountancy, he took pleasure in humiliating him with attacks. His attacks were gross and silly, and but they wounded Philip, and in self-defense he assumed an attitude of superiority which he did not feel. Had a bath this morning, Thompson said, when Philip came to the office late, for his early punctuality had not lasted. Yes, haven't you? No, I'm not a gentleman. I'm only a clerk. I have a bath on Saturday night. I suppose that's why you're more than usually disagreeable on Monday. While you condescend to do a few sums in a simple addition today, I'm afraid it's asking a great deal from a gentleman who knows Latin and Greek. Your attempts at sarcasm are not very happy. But Philip could not conceal from himself that the other clerks, ill-paid and uncouth, were more useful than himself. Once or twice Mr. Goodworthy grew impatient with him. You really ought to be able to do better than this by now, he said. You're not even as smart as the office boy. Philip listened sulkily. He did not like being blamed, and it humiliated him when, having been given accounts to make fair copies of, Mr. Goodworthy was not satisfied and gave them to another clerk to do. At first, the work had been tolerable from its novelty, but now it grew irksome, and when he discovered that he had no aptitude for it, he began to hate it. Often when he should have been doing something that was given him, he wasted his time drawing little pictures on the office note paper. He had sketches of Watson in every conceivable attitude, and Watson was impressed by his talent. It occurred to him to take the drawings home, and he came back next day with the praises of his family. I wonder if you didn't become a painter, he said, only of course there's no money in it. It chanced that Mr. Carter two or three days later was dining with the Watsons and the sketches were shown him the following morning he sent for Philip. Philip saw him seldom and stood in some awe of him. Look here, young fellow, I don't care what you do out of your office hours, but I've seen those sketches of yours and they're on office paper and Mr. Goodworthy tells me you're slack. You won't do any good as a chartered accountant unless you look alive. It's a fine profession and we're getting a very good class of men in it but it's a profession in which you have to... He looked for the termination of his phrase, but could not find exactly what he wanted, so finished rather tamely, in which you have to look alive. Perhaps Philip would have settled down, but for the agreement that if he did not like the work, he could leave after a year and get back half the money paid for his articles. He felt that he was fit for something better than to add up accounts, and it was humiliating that he did so ill something which seemed contemptible. The vulgar scenes with Thompson got on his nerves. In March, Watson ended his year at the office, and Philip, though he did not care for him, saw him go with regret. The fact that the other clerks disliked them equally, because they belonged to a class a little higher than their own, was a bond of union. When Philip thought that he must spend over four years more with that dreary set of fellows, his heart sank. He had expected wonderful things from London, and it had given him nothing. He hated it now, he did not know a soul, and he had no idea how he was to get to know anyone. He was tired of going everywhere by himself. He began to feel that he could not stand much more of such a life. He would lie in bed at night and think of the joy of never seeing again that dingy office or any of the men in it, and of getting away from those drab lodgings. 
A great disappointment befell him in the spring. Hayward had announced his intention of coming to London for the season, and Philip had looked forward very much to seeing him again. He had read so much lately, and thought so much, that his mind was full of ideas which he wanted to discuss, and he knew nobody who was willing to interest himself in abstract things. He was quite excited at the thought of talking his fill with someone, and so was and so he was wretched when Hayward wrote to say that the spring was lovelier than he ever had known it in Italy, and he could not bear to tear himself away. He went on to ask why Philip did not come. What was the use of squandering the days of his youth in an office when the world was beautiful? The letter proceeded. I wonder you can bear it. I think of Fleet Street and Nickel and Lincoln's Inn, sorry, now with a shudder of disgust. There are only two things in the world that make life worth living, love and art. I cannot imagine you sitting in an office over a ledger. Do you wear a tall hat and an umbrella and a little black bag? My feeling is that one should look upon life as an adventure. One should burn with the hard gem-like flame, and one should take risks. One should expose oneself to danger. Why do you not go to Paris and study art? I always thought you had talent. The suggestion fell in with the possibility that Philip for some time had been vaguely turning over in his mind. It startled him at first, but he could not help thinking of it. And in the constant rumination over it, he found his only escape from the wretchedness of his present estate. They all thought he had talent. At Heidelberg they had admired his watercolours. Miss Wilkinson had told him over and over again that they were chasing. Even strangers like the Watsons had been struck by his sketches. La Vie de Baume had made a deep impression on him. He had brought it to London and when he was most depressed, he had only to read a few pages to be transported into those chasing attics where Rudolph and the rest of them danced and loved and sang. He began to think of Paris as before he had thought of London, but he had no fear of a second disillusion. He yearned for romance and beauty and love, and Paris seemed to offer them all. He had a passion for pictures, and why should he not be able to paint as well as anybody else? He wrote to Miss Wilkinson and asked her how much she thought he could live on in Paris. She told him that he could manage easily on £80 a year, and she enthusiastically approved of his project. She told him he was too good to be wasted in an office. Who would be a clerk when he might be a great artist, she asked dramatically, and she besought Philip to believe in himself. That was the great thing. But Philip had a cautious nature. It was all very well for Hayward to talk of taking risks. He had three hundred a year in gilt-edged securities. Philip's entire fortune amounted to no more than eighteen hundred pounds. He hesitated. Then it chanced that one day Mr. Goodworthy asked him suddenly if he would like to go to Paris. The firm did the accounts for a hotel in Forberg Street. Honoro, which was owned by an English company, and twice a year Mr. Goodworthy and a clerk went over. The clerk who generally went happened to be ill, and a press of work prevented any of the others from getting away. Mr. Goodworthy thought of Philip, because he could best be spared, and his articles gave him some claim upon a job, which was one of the pleasures of the business. Philip was delighted. You'll have to work all day, said Mr. Goodworthy. 
but we get our evenings to ourselves and Paris is Paris. He smiled, in a knowing way. They do us very well at the hotel, and they give us all our meals, so it don't cost one anything. That's the way I like going to Paris, as other people's expense. When they arrived at Calais, and Philip saw the crowd of gesticulating porters, his heart leaped. This is a real thing, he said to himself. He was all eyes as the train sped through the country. He adored the sand dunes. The colour seemed to him more lovely than anything he had ever seen, and he was enchanted with the canals and the long lines of poplars. When they got out of the Garou du Nord and trundled along the cobbled streets in a ramshackle noisy cab, it seemed to him that he was breathing a new air so intoxicating that he could hardly restrain himself from shouting aloud. They were met at a door, of the hotel by the manager, a stout, pleasant man who spoke tolerable English. Mr. Goodworthy was an old friend, and he greeted them effusively. They dined in the private room with his wife, and to Philip it seemed that he had never eaten anything so delicious as the beefsteak or pommes, nor drunk such nectar as the vin ordinaire, which was set before him. To Mr. Goodworthy, a respectable householder with excellent principles, the capital of France was a paradise of the joyously obscene, he asked the manager next morning what there was to be seen that was thick. He thoroughly enjoyed these visits of his to Paris. He said they kept you from growing rusty. In the evenings after their work was over and they had dined, he took Philip to the Moulin Rouge and the Folies Bergeries. His little eyes twinkled and his face wore a sly, sensual smile as he sought out the pornographic. He went into the little haunts which were specially arranged for the foreigner, and afterwards said that a notion could come to no good which permitted that sort of thing. A nation, sorry, could come to no good which permitted that sort of thing. He nudged Philip when at some review a woman appeared with practically nothing on and pointed out to him the most strapping of the courtesans who walked about the hall. It was a vulgar Paris that he showed Philip, but Philip saw it with eyes blinded with illusion. In the early morning he would rush out of the hotel and go to the Champs Elysees and stand at the Place de la Concorde. It was June and Paris was silvery with the delicacy of the air. Philip felt his heart go out to the people. Here, he thought at last, was romance. They spent the inside of a week there leaving on Sunday, and when Philip late at night reached his dingy rooms in Barnes, his mind was made up. He would surrender his articles and go to Paris to study art, but so that no one should think him unreasonable, he determined to stay at the office till his year was up. He was to have his holiday during the last fortnight in August, and when he went away he would tell Herbert Carter that he had no intention of returning. But though Philip could force himself to go to the office every day, he could not even pretend to show any interest in the work. His mind was occupied with the future. After the middle of July, there was nothing much to do, and he escaped a good deal by pretending he had to go to lectures for his first examination. The time he got in this way, he spent in the National Gallery. He read books about Paris and books about painting. He was steeped in Ruskin. He read many of Vasari's Vasari's Lives of the Painters. He liked that story of Correggio, and he fancied himself standing before some great masterpiece and crying, Anche io son pittore. 
His hesitation had left him now, and he was convinced that he had in him the markings of a great painter. After all, I can only try, he said to himself. The great thing in life is to take risks. At last came the middle of August. Mr. Carter was spending the month in Scotland, and managing the managing clerk was in charge of the office. Mr. Goodworthy had seemed pleasantly disposed to Philip, seeing their trip to Paris, and now that Philip knew he was soon to be free, he could look upon the funny little man with tolerance. "'You're going for your holiday tomorrow, Carey,' he said to him one evening. All day Philip had been telling himself that this was the last time he would ever sit in that hateful office. "'Yes, this is the end of my year. "'I'm afraid you've done very well. Mr. Carter's very dissatisfied with you.' "'Not nearly so dissatisfied as I am with Mr. Carter,' returned Philip, cheerfully. "'I don't think you should speak like that, Carey. "'I'm not coming back. I made the arrangement.' that if I didn't like accountancy, Mr. Carter would return me half the money I paid for my articles, and I could chuck it in at the end of a year. You shouldn't come to such a decision hastily. For ten months I've loathed it all. I've loathed the work. I've loathed the office. I've loathed London. I'd rather sweep a crossing than spend my days here. Well, I must say, I don't think you're very fitted for accountancy. Goodbye said Philip, holding out his hand. I want to thank you for your kindness to me. I'm sorry if I've been troublesome. I knew almost from the beginning I was no good. Well, if you really do make up your mind, it is goodbye. I don't know what you're going to do, but if you're in the neighbourhood at any time, come in and see us. Philip gave a little laugh. I'm afraid it sounds very rude, but I hope from the bottom of my heart that I shall never set eyes on any of you again. What? <laughs> Damn, Phil. All right, there we go. There's another chapter for you. Um, <laughs> that last line was a good one. Brutal. Uh, Patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. If you want to flick some coinage in my direction, it is much appreciated. I'll probably spend it on, well, I'll spend it on hosting the podcast because there's a monthly fee for hosting the podcast. And whatever's left over, I'll probably spend on knickknacks <laughs> really let's be honest here i'll buy some knickknacks i'm so bored in isolation you know every now and then i just need to buy a little knickknack on like amazon or or something like that you know just a t-shirt or a new hat or you know a, a nice little remote control for my computer something like that just a knickknack i'm really into it um, so, hey, your kind donation via the Patreon will fund my knick-knack addiction, and I do appreciate that. All right. Thanks, guys. I'll see you tomorrow.